0: they have their own world you know they're already doing their work before you engage them they have their own tools their own environments and they have to learn this other environment that you're exposing to if it's not easy for them to use and to get into is they're only
1: going to publish into it they're not going to work in it my name is kashif and this is bio radio a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. In the age of translational medicine, biopharma and academic labs are collaborating both internally and externally. With the increasing in cost associated with drug discovery and development, pharma in particular are looking at partnerships to mitigate risk and increase velocity. Common data sharing platforms are not purpose-built to meet lab-specific challenges, including access control, metadata, and the ability to natively visualize and interact with data. In addition to discussing the necessity of simple and secure collaboration, listeners will learn about the dangers of not using proper tools. Today, we're here with Martin Leach. Could you please introduce yourself?
0: Hi, Chef? Uh, Thank you for inviting me today. Uh, My name is Martin Leach. I'm Vice President
1: of IT at Alexion. Um, Thank you again for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just for context, could you share a bit about your background? I know you've had uh, a pretty long career in in both academia and and biopharma.
0: So uh, yes, a long career. So I started off as a lab technician uh, for the British government, uh, working on prion diseases and genetic linkage analysis. Uh, from there, after taking my PhD, I joined a startup genomics company called Curigen. Uh, Curigen, under Jonathan Rothberg, uh, we we grew quite a bit, and we spun off companies like 454 Genomics, and we created the first commercial next-gen sequencing machine. Uh, from there, um, I went into uh, consulting at Booz Allen, uh, I then got hired into Merck. I led uh, IT for discovery and preclinical sciences, all of the labs, all of the research labs globally. Um, uh, I then uh, changed and pivoted into academia where I was the chief information officer at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, where I helped turn the IT team around and uh, uh, really you know, changed the way we, uh, we approach scientific computing to enable the scientists and the genomics and started uh, Started some of the real cloud-based work that the Broad Institute is now into. From there, I went to Biogen and finally to Alexion, where I lead several groups at Alexion. They lead IT for R&D, IT for human experience, which includes the patient experience group, uh, as well as the global quality function. So I've been in and out of academia, big pharma, biotech and uh, startup
1: and consulting. So learned a few things along the way. (laughs) <laughs> in terms of some level setting, what are the primary driving factors, increasing collaboration, uh, both within organizations and externally? Uh, and, and I guess the secondary question to that is, why the seemingly sudden and dramatic paradigm shift for this increase in collaboration?
0: Well, well collaboration's always been there. I, I'd say one thing that I've seen over the number of years, you know, working in big pharma, biotech, and so on, is that you know companies have recognized that innovation there's more innovation happening outside their four walls than within and to really bring that innovation inside you have to partner license acquire and collaborate and you know the the simplest form is you know well i wouldn't say simplest but you know one of the forms is to collaborate and enter into an academic or a, a, a jv with another company so that you can actually develop something together but you know there's there's also the challenges of you can't do all the work yourself and you need to work with CROs and CMOs contract research organizations and you have work being done outside of your organization and an augmented to augment what you're doing and and then finally the one you know one of the things which you know I'm sort of tackling with at the moment is you know through acquiring other companies you need to integrate and bring in how it's being done in your new company. So I've seen it in several guises over the years to grow rapidly and requires acquisition as well as requiring partnering with third parties. That's probably been some of the biggest drivers that I've seen in how we get work done.
1: Sure, so you mentioned three things. You you mentioned or sort of referenced internal uh, R&D, so exclusively internal. Uh, You've also mentioned uh, external externally developed where you're integrating that in, you know, you've acquired a company or a technology, a process, uh, a drug, for instance, and you're bringing that in. Uh, And then the third form is when you have a joint venture and you're it's more of a collaboration Uh, in the context of of data sharing. Uh, and integration, how do those three sort of differ? And and what are the similarities there? There's probably a fourth one, which
0: uh, I mentioned as well, which is uh, contract research organizations. So from a pure pure internal uh, organization, most organizations, you know, unless you're a large pharmaceutical or biopharmaceutical companies, they're pretty self-encompassed. You know, a group does what a group does. And that group is, you know, one part of the value chain And as they do their work, they share the outcomes, they share the results. They don't necessarily share the sausage making, all the different aspects of what they do, but they share the outcomes of their research. So that's one thing that I see typically in an internal organization. Now, with respect to a collaboration or a partnership, there is a lot more sharing of that work in progress, the work in process, sorry, Uh, because, you know, one part of the party Maybe, for example, supplying reagents. So, you know, for example, when I was at the at Merck and we worked with the Moffitt Cancer Center, uh, we had multiple human cancer samples that were being gathered, collected, annotated at the Moffitt Cancer Center. But Merck was doing the work around the gene expression profiling, the sequencing, and so on. And there was one aspect which was it was the clinical data. You know, the information that was important that gave context to the samples. And then there's the other side, which was Merck, which was doing a lot of the work to generate the raw sequencing or the raw, you know, the transcriptomics or the gene expression profiling data. And then it was about marrying that data together, where we brought those two together. Some of that uh, was done through the analysis because you needed the data, the context of the samples to do your analysis. Whereas in other cases, it was more, you know, we, we want to share back the raw data back to the uh, the other side of the coin, the other party, because that was part of the agreement. So that's just two of the examples. Uh, I'll just stop and let
1: you keep questioning. You mentioned kind of high level four four of these areas: internal, external, joint, and the CXO sort of augmenting yeah. your your research. Um, I guess how are pharma dealing with these challenges in terms of uh, passing on the you know the data, the analysis. Uh, that process. What are the tools that they're using? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what are sort of the options uh, in addition to the advantages, disadvantages with yeah. with, with each of these options?
0: Well, the, the classic way has been, you know, to create, you know, a Citrix type environment where your partner can log into the servers that are within your organization. And then you have to figure out, you know, have I segregated the rest of the world, you know, within my internal data sets, to a point that I can let some outside party come in and just see the piece that they need to. There's a lot of complexity there, and it's never, never done rapidly because there's always some issue around the provisioning of the Citrix or the setting up of the right, whether it's a Citrix or a virtual test desktop, the provisioning of that um, hypervisor environment so that someone can get in. And uh, you know, work with the data that's internal to a company. Now, that has been the classic way of working, and that that's okay to a point, but it's slow and it's not agile. The more and more, you know, that I'm seeing is leveraging cloud-based environments, and uh, you know, there's whether you know some of the work that you're seeing with Accenture that's doing with Merck at the moment or just individual platforms which are just being provided in a cloud environment and with that cloud environment you've essentially put your inside on the outside and with the same level of security controls you can you know you can easily grant access to those that need to get to it. Again, it all depends on how you set up your data environment within that application space. But they're, they're the two main ways that I've seen done on the very rare occasion. This, this tends to be the you know, very conservative big pharma, or some of the very conservative big farmers that really are not fans of cloud, in that you would actually ship laptops your collaborators and that's that that was how we used to do clinical trials many years ago that every every pharmaceutical company would have a different laptop stacked on the desk of a clinical research uh, clinical researcher in some hospital but you know through cloud it's getting a lot easier but again it still takes a certain mindset to be on the cloud and you know some of the big some
1: of the bigger more conservative pharmaceutical companies uh, just aren't there yet so it seems like there's been an evolution from shipping hard drives and laptops, sort of physical, uh, physically stored data uh, to these um, remote desktops, but you, know, you mentioned Citrix, um, and then pushing towards you know, cloud platforms that are, that are sort of more inviting in terms of the sharing. Uh, you, me- you mentioned one of the biggest challenges or risks is around privacy or, or IP, I would imagine. Uh, Are there other challenges that people want to secure or lock down uh, and, and, you know, force these companies to be a lot more conservative and, and, uh, and cautioned in in their approach?
0: Um, I, I think IP is the number one concern as you'd expect, but you know, it then comes down to why am I entering into a relationship with someone if I don't trust them? So you know, you, you put guardrails up to try and guard against that. But from a how to make it happen, you know, f- from a sort of a t- tactical perspective, th- there's a lot of tactical support needed uh, for these. You're, you're going to find that collaborators and partners, they, they have their own world. You know, they're already doing their work before you engage them. They have their own tools, their own environments, and they have to learn this other environment that you're exposing to them. So you want things which are, you know, very intuitive, that don't have a steep learning curve, that have single sign-on, you know, the, these all sound, you know, pretty basic nowadays. But again, when you when you still face a lot of things which have Citrix or virtual desktop environments which you're exposing, you're essentially having to learn everything from scratch. Um, I'd say the, the support, the provisioning, and just the learning curve of your collaborator—that—that uh, that is still some one of the things. That's one of the bigger challenges because you'll find in many cases that, you know, without uh, without you and your collaborator actively using these platforms and tools, you're going to be looking into a dead, <laughs> an empty filing cabinet. It could be beautiful with all these capabilities, but if it's not easy for them to use and to get into is that they're only going to publish into it. They're not
1: going to work in it. Sure. Um, That's sort of in the context of pharma. I mean, I know increasingly IP has become an issue uh, within academia, but are there other reservations that academic labs might have in terms of collaborating uh, beyond just the IP protection? Um, Some of the issues I've seen in academia
0: are more around the volume. Like when, again, maybe it's because I was at the Broad Institute, when we were doing the work that we were doing, the volumes of data were so large, it was very hard to move information back and forth. So how do I collaborate with someone in Uppsala University? It's not easy for me to send several terabytes of genomic data to these folks. So. What we what we had to do then was really have a collaborative Unix environment where they could interact with the scientific computing tools that were needed, uh, so that they could do the analysis and we could uh, collaborate together. So I think the scale of the data uh, is something that becomes uh, another challenge, especially when you start working with academia now. the the inverse of IP is, you know, who publishes first in academia. So, you know, there's still those sort of IP concerns because no one wants to be scooped. But I'd say the, you know, understanding the context of the data and the volumes of the data and the organization of the data that that I've seen that typically more in academia, just because of the scale of things that we
1: would be doing. So you specifically mentioned, um, there are quite a few tools that Happen to be on the cloud that uh, sort of enable more data sharing, collaboration, right? Informatics tools that that happen to be on the cloud that improve that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned uh, forcing users on 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 both ends to adopt new technologies. Uh, I would imagine that problem gets compounded when you uh, when you're looking at it from the lens of the CXOs, uh, you know, the CROs, the CD CDMOS, etc. How do you incentivize them to use your platform of choice? How do you manage the expectations, you know, in terms of competing priorities uh, across various pharma? My philosophy is if I'm going to force them to
0: use something else, they're probably not going to use it. So typically, you know, what what I do working with our alliance teams is say, okay, let's look at what tools they have. Because one, we may learn from them because the smaller hungrier startup company, they're going to find things that a a bigger established company just hasn't seen because people get set in their ways. So I always want to try and learn what uh, I'm facing from the collaborator and, you know, do the, you know, the relevant security assessments and the various things you need to do to ensure that the controls are in place in that environment. And if they are, and if we you know, get the guarantees that the information is going to flow you know, from the partner in that environment, I'm not really wedded to the specific tool that they're using. But you know, there are some provisos. One, that you know, we get rapid support and enablement you know, from our teams, because if someone's going to wait a week to get access, you know, that sort of defeats the purpose. We then look at how can we automate pulling the information down from this other third party system into some of the systems that uh, we are using, whether we you know, throw it into a box environment so that we've got a, a local copy or, or whatever it may be. And then from there, information will cascade into the various systems depending on what that information is. But typically, in most collaborations, unfortunately, uh, Excel and PowerPoint are the main means that
1: people use to exchange information. Yeah, it seems so, to be the. S- still remains the, the bioinformatics tool of choice. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you mentioned three sort of big concerns or issues that you look at. Um, so security, rapid enablement or, or deployment, I would imagine, uh, as well as automation. Are there other aspects that you consider and uh, what overall does that evaluation process look like when you're, when you're looking at new technologies to, to enable sharing and collaboration?
0: What, what are the levels of security controls they have? How can we segregate information? Can we segregate functional level controls and not just data level controls? Um, you know, Are there multiple different levels of users? You know, the, These are all the basic things. But another thing that we try to look at is when it's all said and done, how do we get the information back out again? So m- many people don't think about your back out or your decommissioning strategy from the beginning, but it's very important because every collaboration ends uh, so with every collaboration ending, you've then got the problem down the road. so understanding you know what is, what is the way that the information is organized, how can you extract it, and you know what would be uh, some of the gaps you have to factor into, how you operate with that tool, with that platform. Uh, so that when you get to the end of the line, you can easily pull it out and you've got
1: it in an organized fashion. You, you mentioned looking at startups and potential partners and, and asking them what tools they're using. Uh, what does that process look like? Well,
0: uh, you know, we work you know, hand in hand with our security team. So the security team would go off and do a security assessment, you know, many, many questions. And that once those questions are addressed, you know, that's part of it. And then another part of our assessment is we have our um, uh, we, we have an internal review process where we look at the architecture of any given environment, and does this architecture does the architecture of this other thing fit into how we work or how we want to work? And that that's sort of those two assessments are the key ones. And then it sort of comes down to you know do we have the basic operating model between the alliance teams the collaboration teams on both sides? so that we can actually, you know, make the work happen and the data flow. So those are probably the only three assessments. We try to keep it as straightforward. Now, assessment around functionality, that's gonna depend, you know, is it a chemistry type work? Is it, uh, you know, the, the actual assessing on a given technical capability? That's going to be so varied, depending on the actual work being done. Whether it's a genomic collaboration, whether it's a molecule collaboration, whether it's a CRO. So that that's very specific, and that's where you would bring in the subject matter experts uh, from, you know, the business line
1: functions as well as the technical informatics functions. You mentioned usability, right? So if yeah. regardless of how great a tool is in terms of its capabilities, if no one likes to use it, it will be that empty, you know, file cabinet. How do you go about evaluating that? Um, or or assessing that aspect of it? Uh, Well, I think a large part
0: of that is, you know, we we do a couple of different things, you know, on occasion, uh, more and more frequently, we uh, take a design thinking approach, where we, you know, look at our problem, we blow up our problem, we look at the possible solutions. And uh, we, we sort of really try to put our put ourselves as well as bring in, the users, the end users along on the journey, so that we're focused on the experience they're trying to get out of this thing that's changing, or this thing that they're going to have. So that's probably more for bigger systems implementations or bigger changes. Um, I'd say from a, a, what do we do most of the time? Most of the time, you know, we would essentially sit down some core uh, technical users uh, from the business line that would be associated with, you know, one of these things. And, you know, we essentially walk through, we do half day workshops or more and they literally get their hands on it before we actually, you know, invest in these things. And that the, the excitement and joy, you know, cause again, I, I'm part where I am today. I'm part of it, but we report into the human experience function, you know, understanding, the employee experience, you know, the experience and can we modify or, or improve the experience that someone gets out of what their tools that they use and how they work. That's very important in terms of the way we work. So, you know, try. I'm not a professional ethnographer, but, that's probably what I should be to do this even better. But we're really trying to look at what experience can we make better or improve, and you try to get that feedback from uh, the actual people. And it's not just a bunch of IT gearheads figuring this out, but we actually have hands-on interaction uh,
1: with the users and their feedback. Sure, so we spoke a bit about sharing, uh, you know, two parties sharing information that exchange, you know, in the context of either the collaborator or, or like a CXO, uh, what about the collaboration side, right? So if the data are going back and forth, perhaps multiple organizations, um, I'm thinking specifically in the context of academia where you have consortia of various groups, academic labs that are working together for, for a common purpose. How, how do you go about sharing, uh, A, what are the types of data that, um, that these groups are sharing and, and how do they typically go about collaborating?
0: Yeah, I, I'm going to probably sort of think back to you know ser- several other places that I've worked. So, you know, for example, when, at the Broad Institute, uh, we uh, we had such a vast amount of data that we were we were working with. Uh, I believe this was working with Novartis and the Cancer Cell Line Encyclopedia. We had such a, we had such a vast amount of information uh, that we. We, we would actually go to a very special data center in downtown Boston and with the approval of the, um, network engineers and security engineers, we actually would go to a special box and connect the two networks and let the data flow. And then we would unhook it, unhook again, because it was just such vast amount of data, but that was all done in a very secure controlled, um, firewall way. So that, that was one way which was literally the brute force of connecting the big fat pipes together. I'd say most, other ways in terms of, you know, getting things to the collaborator, it's been, you know, delivery through various file share type platforms, which I think are they're okay because they're just filing systems, but typically dropping information into various file shares, whether it's a box, a Dropbox, a SharePoint, they're all filers to some extent. I think email is still used, unfortunately, as a means of sharing a lot of information with collaborators. And uh, I think the risk there is that, you know, one, you really can't really keep provenance unless you just store all your email forever as to what all the messages gone back and forth. Whereas having them, via a system, you know, definitely a cloud-based system, which they can access, you can keep track of what's done and audit trail and who's looked at them, who hasn't looked at them because that's very important because you don't just want to deliver information. You want to make sure that information is being received and
1: used. Right, and then what are the types of data that people are sharing? You know, whether it is something that's more um, more interactive or something that's a little more stagnant, where you're just doing that data dump.
0: Yeah, Um, I'd say it's it's just uh, it's just so many different types of data that I've seen over my career. So you know, when when I was at Merck and we had uh, my imaging informatics team there was a lot of imaging data that we would move back and forth between the imaging CROs to actually get work done. And that was moving uh, MRI data, X-ray data, you know, a lot of autoradiograms that we were generating. And we, uh, we had a specific system that we used to do that. So that's like one set of data, but then whether we use seven bridges or DNA Nexus or some other genomics platform to move genomics data around or the Illumina platform, you know, those, those tend to be set up uh, because they'll have some tools for the manipulation of data, plus they know how to import and export the various formats of the data. There's, of course, the file sharers that I mentioned, the One Drives, the the Google Docs and and Dropbox and Box and all those, but those are files. And then I think some other ones, which uh, there's been a bit of an increased use around SAS and the life science uh, environment of SAS. It's typically within a company versus between companies, but you know, easily you get your stuff into the cloud based s environment and you
1: can actually, you know, do your analytics. So in in terms of the mindset, both at the level of the researcher as well as you know organizationally, right? How do you how do you shift that mindset to promote the the uh, increased collaboration and sharing, right? Uh, There's definitely a cultural shift that's happening, right? Uh, How do you promote that? Uh, that, that's, That's always a tough one. It's got to create a
0: better world for that person. Like the data itself is one thing, and there's the desire for that data to be used and reused by many other people. But the person that's doing the work, they're just focused on their activity. I have a job to do, I have to crank out 10 assays today, I have to collect that data and put it somewhere. They, they don't wanna sit down and catalog every well on a plate and say, okay, this is assay number one and it's this type of experiment and this type of molecule and let me put it on this ontology and classify it. They don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that extra work. So how do you convince people to do stuff? You have to give them smarter tools that will take a molecule name, go to a database, do some auto classification, and do that as part of the work. You have to make it so that if their way of working was 10 steps, you now make it one step. It's all gotta be about making their experience a lot better, but enriching the information and enriching what it is they're doing, whether they are gonna benefit from that enrichment or whether some downstream user is going to benefit from it, so you have to sort of smooth out those road bumps as much as possible. Now, you you still need to play the whole cultural angle, and you have to do the buy-in. You have to get them involved
1: in the design of things. So you know, there's the whole classic change management. So you spoke about you know the individual benefit or value, right? They have to see how how this tool is going to help them. Yeah. Uh, what about kind of higher level, you know, at the, at the organizational level, how do you, what, what are the benefits, uh, either tangible, intangible, of uh, of that particular set of data or the reuse of the data or using it in conjunction with other data sets?
0: Yeah, well, I, I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. I'm, I'm relatively early on the FAIR journey. So making data findable, accessible, uh, interoperable, and reusable. That's something that I'm pro- promoting where I am today. It's something I started and my prior organization. And you know, the thing which you have to think about is at the end of the day, you know, people just want to get their work done. They want to do the best job they can. So going back to, you know, how really an organization can really get the better value and you know trying to get the individual to see that. Part of it is, you know, working with the various leaders, working with the various leaders in the R and D organization in this case. Where you know they tend to see the bigger picture around information use and reuse because individuals tend not to reuse someone else's info; they tend to use their info. It's other groups downstream. Now it's those leaders, those other R and D leaders, which are trying to do those meta analyses or deeper analyses, or whether it's someone in an informatics group, a clinical informatics group, a bioinformatics group, or a med informatics group—they're the people that will want that data but the person that generated the data doesn't even know that that person will want that data. So they're not going to anticipate those needs. So I think, so there are individuals that want this. I think part of what we're trying to do, you know, where I am today is if, if we can make it easy for the scientists to register their information. So as I said, building smart tools around what they're doing, Um, you know, some people will use the term data catalog. It's like we all, if you just think about the vast corpus of information you have in any organization, that that really is your data catalog. You know, all the information you have, but how you slice and dice it and segregate it is going to be whether it's chemical, whether it's biological, whether it's preclinical, clinical clinical, and so on. Um, That is where the reuse is going to happen. That's where the bigger value is going to come so that when, Someone that wants to do real world evidence says, I want to look at all the multiple sclerosis data, uh, or I want to look at all the data associated with individuals that were placebo in an ALS trial, that they want to make those queries, identify those data sets, and then make the decision on. What are those
1: data sets can I use? Just to recap, you know, you started the conversation around physical laptops or, or hard drives being shared to Citrix or virtual machines, uh, virtual environments that are, that are opened up and then moving towards cloud-based systems uh, for, for data sharing collaboration. Um, you mentioned one of the one of the issues was just around audit control, being able to track who has access to the data, what changes they made, things like that. Um, sort of looking forward, how do you see tools evolving to better suit the needs, particularly in the context of biopharma research? Um, how, how, where do you see this going and and how soon do you think we're, we'll get there again, I, I have my bias. And uh, my,
0: my bias is mostly focused around how people can interact with data, how people can visualize data, because if you can easily visualize data, then you can start to understand what is happening with it and then spin it and change it and analyze it and so on. So. You know, there are data visualization platforms. You know, there's been Spotfire for many years. I remember using the very first, some of the very first versions of Spotfire. There's Spotfire, Tableau, and there's dashboarding tools like Click and so on. These still require experts to use. You know, I think as we get data visualization uh, democratized, as in it's uh, a platform could look at the data and say, ah, oh, you need to visualize it this way because it's this type of data. I see time. I see this. Let's do a time series. And then as it's a time series, it's like, well, let's see any variations over time and identifying outliers and automated outlier analysis. There's things that could be easily done just by looking at the data.
1: Well, thank you for listening to buy Radio. I'd like to thank Martin for being our guest today. Uh, talking about simple and secure collaboration. I'd also like to thank the listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts.
0: This podcast is an original creation of BioRad Laboratories. BioRad is a trademark of BioRad Laboratories Incorporated. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.